Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This became an overwhelming investigation because right about at this time, another complaint came in involving a police officer, Francisco, who had been Robert's recruit. Robert was the field training officer for Francisco. And now we were getting complaints from a person saying Francisco was doing the same stuff. Same vulnerable population complaining about Francisco now? Yes. This particular episode is a follow-up to The Sociopath and the Whistleblower, a four-part series we cover in Season 1. If you haven't yet, we highly recommend that you go back and listen to The Sociopath and the Whistleblower before going any further. I'm Yardley. And I'm Zibby. And we're fascinated by true crime. So we invited our friends, detectives Dan and Dave, to sit down with us and share their most interesting cases. I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. We're identical twins, and we're detectives in small-town USA. Dave investigates sex crimes and child abuse. Dan investigates violent crimes, and together we've worked on hundreds of cases, including assaults, robberies, murders, burglaries, sex abuse, and child abuse. Names, locations, and certain details of these cases have been altered to protect the privacy of the victims and their families. While we realize that some of our listeners may be familiar with these cases, we hope you'll join us in continuing to protect the true identities of those involved out of respect for what they've been through. Today on Small Town Dicks, we have a follow-up to The Sociopath and the Whistleblower. And with us, we have the usual suspects. We have Detective Dan. Pleasure to be here. Detective Dave. Good afternoon. And our very special guest, Lieutenant Scott. Thank you for having me back. So glad to have you. So this episode is specifically a follow-up on Francisco, who was the training officer below Robert from our Sociopath and the Whistleblower series in season one. Yeah, so he was uniquely different, but similar as far as being a predatory sex offender. And what I mean by that is that, for instance, with Robert... Robert was really deliberate about hiding his activities. He did his best to try to conceal what he was doing. He would check out one place, and then we would determine later through 
forensic analysis and comparison of confidential police databases and police activity that he was somewhere else. But he was trying to be somewhere else. And he also never acknowledged that he had done anything wrong, that he had any contact with these women. So uniquely, Francisco acknowledged interactions with these women. To you or to everyone? To me, yeah. Oh my. Later. And he also checked out at these places on the radio. So he would status himself with dispatch at geographic locations that were consistent with where he was at. Really? So I think he was a lot more sophisticated and complicated than Robert. Robert was described as being crude and abrupt and really predatory. And women got a sense of danger with him. And they didn't so much with Francisco because of the way Francisco operated. So he would represent that he was single and available and interested in these women when he would interact with them on calls for service. Many times he would be dispatched to a location involving a woman. And so it was really just random. Although not always, we'll talk about Liza, who I mistakenly referred to as Lisa when we talked about the sociopath and the whistleblower. Liza was different. I mean, he did target her. But some of these women, he wouldn't target necessarily. He would just encounter them during the course of his normal business, and he would then use his legitimate law enforcement interaction with them to target them. And I remember you saying that Francisco was younger and certainly better looking. Yeah. Which sounds like that sort of is in line with the way people received him versus... Robert, who was really rough to look at and had more of an aggressive vibe to him. I think he was more sophisticated in his approach, and he did not look as threatening, I guess, if that makes sense. Sure. So that was a contrast to the Robert case. And during the course of the investigation, it really was focused on Robert. We heard from Bobby, and she mentioned to us that Robert is not your only problem at the police department. Who was Bobby? Was she another frequent flyer, like so many of the other women from the sociopath and the whistleblower? She was not necessarily a frequent flyer. She had some documented contacts with the police, but they really happened after she started using heroin. So she had otherwise led a legitimate life. She had children. She had jobs in the community and I think was well-liked. She was educated. She just, she got hooked on heroin and she started that decline that we've talked about. Did she come to you unsolicited once the Robert story had sort of made its way around the community? Yeah, she came forward and she and I had some history also. Oh, how so? When I was a detective in the violent crimes unit, she had reported a sexual assault and I was the assigned investigator. And it was one of those cases that um, we call them he said, she said cases. And it was a situation where all the evidence was equal and there was no compelling evidence to substantiate a forcible rape. And when that came down to that kind of a circumstance, sometimes I used my credibility scale that I have talked about that was flawed. But I used that in consulting with the district attorney that was assigned to Bobby's case. And the district attorney's office ended up not filing any charges. By your scale, do you mean like how as a cop, you tend to give more weight to the credibility of your fellow officers than say someone who is a frequent flyer or who's got a record of some sort or has a history of trying to lie to the police? Absolutely. And part of our job actually is to listen to other cops. And sometimes I act on another cop's probable cause, his PC, just by his word. So when he's not credible, it really shakes you to the core as a police officer. 
Exactly. And so Bobby held me responsible for that. And she certainly remembered me when she came forward on the Robert case. Interesting. Did she remember you fondly or not fondly because they hadn't brought charges? So she's like, you're not, not fondly. you're yeah. an asshole. Yeah. Totally. You know, she did. She, she, in fact, used that word. She's like, so you're the asshole assigned to, to this case? Wow. Do you remember me? You know, I, I didn't really. So we had to mend that fence. We talked about that. We talked quite a bit about it. She was with a lawyer and, you know, she vented to me, I would say. And she finally was one who, in the end, was a very strong supporter of me. She trusted me. She reached out to me after the fact. But she was one of those people that I think made the most impact on me because of that prior relationship with her where, like I said, I had been flawed in my thought process where I look on now and go, well, knowing what I know now, I probably made a mistake. Wow. And so when she came back to you saying, Robert's not your only problem, and she also simultaneously was venting to you about the history that you shared, you were sort of in this softer spot because your credibility scale was already in the middle of being shifted drastically. Right? Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. So I, you know, I mean, I did, I apologize. I had my hat in my hand and I said, look, I was wrong. I, you know, I've learned a lot since then. And I'm in the process of going through that transition right now. And so anyway, we got past that. And she said, this Francisco guy is also a problem for you guys. And I said, well, how so? And she said, she had been dealing with Robert. Uh, again, she's involved in heroin and she had had some sort of a sexual assault and Robert was the assigned patrol officer. Robert used that investigation as an excuse to have contact with her routinely under the auspices of following up on this sexual assault investigation, which by the way, he never documented. You're so, kidding. Yeah, he would tell her, you know, I need to talk to you about the case. And she's tolerating him and his behaviors because she thinks he's investigating her as being the victim of a sexual assault. When he would continue to visit her, posing as though he's following up, would he then sexually assault her himself? Yeah, he would take advantage of the circumstances and he would do things with her. And she was a very assertive person. Like I mentioned, when she found out it was me, she didn't pull back any punches, you know. She said, I'm assertive, but with a uniformed cop, and plus he had this sort of leverage with me because he was my assigned investigator on this case that I really felt like I needed to deal with. So she tolerated him. She allowed him to do these things. And so, yeah, he would make suggestive comments to her. He fondled her. He ultimately compelled her to perform oral sex. But she said one night he came over and she said, hey, I talked to another officer. She had been involved in some kind of a neighborhood dispute and Francisco had contacted her. And Francisco, she said, was doing some of the same things. He was checking me out. He commented on my breasts and asked me about my relationships and if I was single and all that kind of thing. But she said, when she told Robert about having been visited by Francisco, Robert said, oh, he's my protege. Jesus. Oh my God. Robert was Francisco's field training officer. And as we talked about, they were in the critical phase of the shadow aspect of that training. And so Robert was shadowing Francisco for a period of time. Right. So we hadn't really found any official documented training where Robert was passing along his, you know, hey, here's how to pick up women on this job aspect. 
but they were clearly alike. So that was interesting. And then the other thing is, is that when Bobby and Francisco had a conversation about Robert and Francisco said, oh yeah, I'm really good friends with Robert. Oh, oh wow. my God. Scott, remind us how the Francisco case came to your attention because it was while you were investigating Robert. Yeah, the Francisco case started with a letter from a guy named Matt. And Matt had been previously convicted regarding a marijuana grow at his house. And as you'll recall, he sent that letter to the district attorney's office and he claimed that the marijuana case was contrived and that the probable cause, Francisco said that he... Uh, he smelled it right. as he was walking by the exactly. street. Right. Yeah, so he makes this open air kind of a observation about the scent of green marijuana and uses that as a means of getting into the house. And he claimed in his police reports that he had never heard of this Matt person prior to randomly smelling the odor of marijuana. Francisco claimed that. Yeah. So Francisco, then we learned during the course of our investigation that actually prior to making that observation, he had run Matt's name like 28 times. Wow. Prior to when this happened. And so then we concluded that Matt was in the way, that really Francisco was targeting Liza. So when Francisco first met Liza, Liza was advertising as a prostitute on a website. Liza and Matt lived together, didn't they? Yeah. And she said that Francisco was her first response when she opened that website. He's not trying to do an official sting like we do on occasion. He's a real customer. Yeah, so she advertises as an escort, and he contacts her. They communicate by way of instant message, and they ultimately arrange to meet, and they meet at a coffee shop in our city, and Francisco's wife and kids are out of town, and he invites Liza to go back with him to his house. Oh, in the home. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's so bold. And so the concept behind advertising as an escort, whether it's boldly printed out or if it's underlying is this is prostitution this is sex for money and so our theory is you know obviously he's the first customer at least as far as she's concerned on that website they meet that's her idea why we're meeting is we're meeting to have sex for money but he explains to her i am a cop i'm not interested in paying for sex but she had disclosed during the course of their brief conversation at the coffee shop that she was having problems with her ex-boyfriend, a different guy, not Matt. And so she had described some domestic violence, and he said, I can help you take care of that, but I'm not going to pay for sex. Wow. Hmm. So obviously the implication is... I'll take care of you, you take care of me. Exactly. No money will be exchanged. Right. And that's, you know, leverage. Right. So he drives to his house a short distance from the coffee shop. She follows him and she says they have sex. She tells me later they have sex at his house. And initially she says it's consensual. She says during the course of the act, she sees a wedding picture of Francisco and his wife in the room. How awkward. And so she says, I changed my mind is what she tells me. And she said, I tried to stop, I tried to separate myself and get away, and he didn't let me. So she implies that he forcibly continued to have sex with her. And she later reported that that was a rape. And she reported it as a rape much later, right? Right. So, of course, when we talk with Francisco later, he describes it differently and says it was consensual. So at this point, how is all this information landing on you? Because you've got the case against Robert, 
which just seems to go on and on and on. Every time you turn around, another woman is telling you how he sexually assaulted her. And now all of a sudden you have all this new information about his protege doing a lot of the same stuff. So where does it go in you? When we get this information, I'm still a little bit skeptical. I mean, what's the odds I figure in our small town that now we have two? I have already kind of crossed that bridge where I think I'm more agreeable to believing that this kind of misbehavior can happen, as I talked about with the Robert transition, but I'm still a little bit skeptical. So I called Liza and Dennis and I had talked about it. Sorry to interrupt. I just want to remind our listeners that Dennis is the veteran detective that you brought out of retirement to help you investigate Robert. Yes. Right. And our theory was if she's been in his house, she can describe it. She can describe where he lives. She knows his phone numbers, those kinds of things. Because at this point, we were kind of learning this information through the letter that Matt had written to the district attorney. So she knows his personal cell phone number. She knows his home phone number. She knows the hours that he works. She describes the house. She describes the inside of the house, vivid detail about the wedding pictures and all that stuff. And that obviously makes, in our minds, she's credible. And I'm assuming that she knows all of these things, including the hours that he works, because after that initial encounter where they went back to have what was started as consensual sex turned into what was reported to be rape from her perspective, she kept seeing him because he had stuff on her? Yeah, so they continued to see each other Okay. for a period of time. She, again, as I said, she worked as a stripper. And she worked at a strip club downtown, and he worked at night. That's another consistent theme. These things happen at night under the cover of darkness. It's a little easier to hide at night and conceal your activities. And I think Dan and Dave can testify to this as well. At nighttime, there's a little bit less supervision. All the bosses go home after 5 o'clock. Right. And has Robert been arrested yet at this point that you're finding this stuff out from Liza and Bobby? Robert had been put on administrative leave. So he knows something's up, Robert does. He knows you're investigating him. In theory, I think by that time, he does know. Okay. Yeah. Again, we were trying to keep it quiet, but I think within the agency, people know when somebody doesn't show up to work, a rumor starts. Sure. You know, what's up with him. And Francisco was still working, or was he suspended after that first complaint letter from Matt? No, so he was still working. But we find out that during the course of her telling the story, and Matt also mentioned in his letter that Francisco had forced Liza and one of her girlfriends or compelled them to perform oral sex on him at the same time in a park after a traffic stop. How does something like that even happen? She says that he had followed her to work. He hung around after work. He knew when she got off work and he saw Liza and her girlfriend leaving the club. He could tell they were intoxicated. It was like two o'clock in the morning. He pulled in behind him and he pulled him over. Apparently they talked and visited. Obviously they're familiar with each other because this is after she had had this meeting with him and had sex with him at his house. And he said, hey, where are you going? And they said they were going to the neighboring city. They referenced a park near the university in this town. And he said, meet me there. So they did. And the parks close at 10 o'clock and he knows that. But this is a really remote park and there's a covered area. And he said, meet me at the covered area. And so they went up there, he met them. Eliza describes Francisco, got a call for service. So he said, I got to go, but I'll come back if you guys want to hang out. So they hung out. They hung out. Wow. 
You know, this is one of those stories that makes you realize that victims don't always act or feel like the classic victim portrayed in the movies, you know? Yeah, in the movies, these women never would have waited around in the park for Francisco to come back. It's just, oh, it's awful. You have to understand that the uniform itself, it's a use of force. Its presence will cause people to act in a certain way most of the time. And in this case, it almost creates an unspoken hierarchy between these three people. These girls are driving drunk, and they can certainly get in trouble. So they use this as an opportunity. Hey, I'll meet up with Francisco, and maybe I won't get in trouble. It's still so devastating. Yeah. So he ended up coming back, and he describes during the course of our later recorded interview, he said that the girls were into each other, as he put it. He said that they were kissing and fondling each other, and then he said they turned their attention to him. Well, he's operating a Mark patrol car. He's in a covered but lighted area in this park in uniform, and he says that he is having them perform oral sex on him. <sighs> and what's unique, again, about Francisco is at the time when we talked to him, he is under the opinion that, yeah, this may be misbehavior and it's probably against policy, you know, that kind of thing. But he says he doesn't perceive that it's criminal, that there's anything criminal about this. It's misconduct in his official capacity. And he's allowing these women to drive while they're intoxicated. And the benefit that he gets is when you get to your destination, you're going to perform oral sex on me and I'm not going to arrest you. But he's very candid, obviously, in sharp contrast with Robert, who, when I give him an opportunity, he does give me a story. It's certainly not the truth. And from that point on, he doesn't acknowledge any wrongdoing at all. Francisco doesn't put together the fact that Robert is on administrative leave because of his sexual misconduct. Francisco goes, oh, that doesn't apply to me, even though it's exactly the same act that Robert has done. I'm just speculating, but I believe that Robert and Francisco talked. I think that after Robert went on administrative leave during that investigation, they talked. It makes sense, of course. It makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. And then you see these behaviors that are similar. The Preferred Sex Act is the same, the shared victim, not only Bobby, but we talked about Miriam, who had been contacted when they were together in a training phase where they were working in the same car, and there was that commentary strip search. Right, right, this is how you do it, and he found a little bindle of heroin. Right, yeah. mm -hmm. and then Miriam later tells us there was a subsequent contact where the two of them contacted her again, and this time she says Francisco did the search, Ugh. and Robert commented as it was taking place. So again, there's a circumstance where there's no official training but certainly by exposure, that training is happening. If Francisco and Robert spoke once Robert was on administrative leave, what do you speculate was the nature of that conversation? Because still I'm trying to figure out why Francisco would be in a way so cavalier or sort of as if everything he did was sort of like, well, it may not be great, but it's not criminal. Yeah. You think he was instructed? I have a theory. Yeah. Is that we've talked about if you lie, you die. And Robert knows that he hasn't been honest with Scott during his interviews. He got caught and he got jammed up and now he's on admin leave and probably going to get fired. If you lie, you die. So there could have been a conversation coupled with Francisco thinking, I'm charming these girls. These are consensual acts where Robert knows that he's compelling, forcing, intimidating, coercing women into this contact. Whereas Francisco thinks, these are consensual because these girls are really into me. Right. Like, I'm cleverer than that. Yeah. When I tell the truth, 
I'm telling the truth. It's probably a policy violation, but I'm being truthful about it. I should be in the clear. Yeah. Wow, that's just disgusting. I think probably what happened is that Francisco regarded himself as smarter than Robert. I mean, you wouldn't have to spend very much time in a police car together and realize that Robert's kind of a rock, paper, scissors sort of a guy. He's not <laughs> very bright, you know. And um, and I think in contrast, Francisco had a degree. He was smart. He'd been in the Marine Corps. Oh, right. If I had to speculate, he was probably listening to Robert and whatever Robert was disclosing, he was probably thinking, like Dave said, that's not me. I'm different. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey folks, Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360 degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is Simply Safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. U.S. News and World Report named Simply Safe. Best Home Security Systems 2024. And Newsweek ranked it Best Customer Service in Home Security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60 day money back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect Monitoring at simplysafe.com slash small town. That's simplysafe.com slash small town. There's no safe like Simply Safe. 
What's the thing that ultimately sank Francisco? We started going down a similar investigative path with Francisco. God, this investigation, you were feeling so much corruption. I can't even wrap my mind around it. You know, and the thing is, is that when it became public that we were investigating now two officers, then we started getting calls on the tip line. We had a designated tip line. And we'd have women approach the district attorney's office and say, I have a story to tell about Francisco. You remember I talked about going to the prison. Yes, you went to the prison to interview one woman's complaints about Robert. And I ended up talking. To 10. Yeah. And when I got there, one of those women wanted to talk about Francisco. Oh. She described having been a robbery suspect. She was in prison at the time for that very robbery. It was sort of a home invasion style kind of a robbery where she was involved. She said that she was contacted by Francisco at a time when the other officers all knew that she was wanted in connection with this robbery. They were seeking her. She was a publicized target within the police department. And she was arrested ultimately by some patrol officers. And during the course of her arrest, she disclosed, well, I was contacted yesterday by Francisco and he didn't arrest me. You know, why are you guys arresting me? So when I talked to her at the prison, she said, he let me go. He took me into custody and he detained me for a period of time. He ultimately let me go and he instructed me to meet him at a park. Well, it was the same park that Robert had had that sexual encounter with Janine. In the bathrooms. In the disgusting bathroom. Exactly. And this was right in the heart of the hood. It was a pretty bad park. And, you know, these guys were geographic with respect to their predatory behavior. Sure. And that was right in the same area. And anyway, he directed this girl to go to that park. And she didn't. She did not. She did not. She took advantage of that situation and she knew what he wanted. She told me, she said, I knew he was talking to me sexually. He wanted me to meet him there. And I knew that he was going to want sex. I could tell he talked to me about it. Did she say, okay, I'll meet you there and then didn't go? And then she fled. Yeah. Yes, girl. So she's, yeah, she's savvy, like many of these girls who are on the street. Mm-hmm. Of course, we could go back and look at the record, and he had checked out with her at a location. He didn't check out with her by name, but she told us where this interaction happened, and we were able to verify that. So, again, we had several women that contacted us during the course of that time after it became public that he was also under scrutiny and had also been placed on administrative leave. I remember back when we were covering the sociopath and the whistleblower, you said that with regards to Francisco, at some point you were forced to stop looking because he took an Alford plea. Right. Dave, I see you sitting over there nodding. Tell us what an Alford plea is. So they're basically saying, I'm not pleading guilty. I'm taking an Alford plea to say that the state has evidence that could convince a jury that I'm guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And so it's kind of an acceptance of, you guys have a really strong case against me, but I'm not going to say that I did it. Right. How many women do you know of were victims of Francisco's? He was charged related to, I, th- I think there were nine women that he was charged related to. But I knew of more, and I had talked to more. In fact, there was one case where a woman had been contacted by Francisco and another officer. He was a transplant that came to us. And he was very experienced. His name was Jimmy. So when Francisco's information came out 
that he was also under scrutiny, officers came forward and started telling stories just like on the Robert case. They said, hey, now that I know what Francisco's all about, I got a story to tell you. And this Jimmy officer came to me and he said, hey, I got this story. So he said, Francisco and I got sent to this trailer park and we ended up contacting a man and a woman. And he said, there'd been a dispute and so what is protocol is that you separate the two involved combatants. And he said, Francisco went into the trailer with the woman and Jimmy said, I stayed outside with the guy. We just do that for officer safety and we typically keep each other in sight, but we separate them so we can kind of get a straight story about what's happening and try to resolve whatever the conflict is. Jimmy said, at one point it became awkward. Like I had been out there and I had already talked to this guy about what the situation was. And then we started talking about his car. He was working on a car parked out next to the trailer. And he said, we were just making small talk about the weather. And I started to realize, where is Francisco? So he said he kind of excused himself from this guy for a second. Because he said the guy also, the male half of the dispute was like, are we done? Right? Dude, right. what's going on? Mm -hmm. So Jimmy goes up and knocks on the trailer and says, hey, Francisco, we about ready? And Francisco opens a window to what turns out to be the bathroom and says, yeah, we're just about done. I'll be out in just a second. Jimmy tries the door and Jimmy notices the door's locked, but he doesn't oh really God. think anything of it, Ugh. right? And so he hangs out for a little longer and pretty soon Francisco comes out and the officers leave. So he tells me about the situation and he says, you might want to check into it. So I end up learning the names of the two involved parties and I contact this woman, Becky. I talk to her about it and I say, hey, do you remember this situation where there was this dispute? Do you remember what happened? And she says, yeah, I've heard about what's happening with Francisco. I was thinking about maybe coming forward and talking about it, but she said, you know, I'm sick. And again, she was a heroin junkie and she said, um, but yeah, he came to our house. We had been in a dispute. When he came in, she said there was a bong and marijuana on the counter inside. And he closed the door and he said, you know, I can charge you with this. You end up going to jail. Uh, I'm sure if I search, I'll find more. He says, or you can give me a blowjob. And so she says, while the other officer and her partner her standing outside that he's in the bathroom forcing her to perform oral sex. Come on. Disgusting. Yeah. And again, this is another sort of consistent theme. She says he starts to lose his erection during the course of this sexual encounter. And so he takes his gun out and puts it to her head. And she says he recovers his erection. What? So, yeah. What? That yeah. just gives you a little insight into how he fuels his fire, where he's coming from. Yeah. Power. Right. It's just like Yardley's response is like shocking. It's like, what? When the cop is outside and with her partner, her partner within earshot. I mean, we're talking about a single wide trailer. It's a living nightmare. Right. Oh my God. And brazen. But I think that risk factor is exciting for him. I think he derives sexual arousal from being in that situation at risk. So at some point during your investigation, it comes time to confront Francisco. How did that go? After we got the letter from Matt and the district attorney disclosed the details, and he went into great detail about not only the fact that he had been targeted for this marijuana grow, and it was his impression that he was targeted in order to get him out of the way so that Francisco could have direct access to Liza without having interruption or interference from the boyfriend, Matt that also he had these allegations that there had been these sexual encounters and that there was some forcible component to it. 
and that there had been a search where Liza's panties and photographs of her naked were also taken during the course of the marijuana investigation. So Liza lived in a new state. She and Matt had moved away. She and Matt had moved away after Matt was released from jail. Yeah, and he had gotten the criminal conviction and mm-hmm. they had moved away. Okay. He learned later through the course of discussion with Liza, she told him about what had happened. I see. I see. And that's when the letter was written. Right. Got it. So I reached out to Liza and we decided to do a phone trick. What's a phone trick? Phone trick usually only works if they don't know the police are involved, the the suspect side of the phone conversation. And where we live is a one-party state, meaning only one participant in that phone conversation has to know that it's being recorded. So it's, it's basically a confrontation call where we put victim or maybe younger children will put the parent of the victim on the phone with the suspect and confront them and say, What do you have to say for yourself? It creates some urgency for the suspect to come up with a story right now. So I'm not sure what script you went with there, but it's just a recorded conversation. And it's pretty compelling evidence if it's a situation where it could be a he said, she said, and we've got no physical evidence. Let's hear what happened when the victim talked to the guy on the phone and she calls him out. Mm -hmm. So who'd you put on the phone with who? So what we did is Liza had a cell phone with a area code that was consistent with her new home state. So Dennis and I decided if she's agreeable, let's bring her back here where we can participate in this phone trick where we will record a conversation that she initiates to Francisco and we can monitor that conversation. Let's see if he acknowledges what she says happened or maybe he puts it into a context that's different, but let's find out. So we fly her back to our town. Liza, we gave her specific instructions. The whole idea is we want to get you here. We want him to think when he's talking to you that you're there in the other state. I see. Okay. Certainly don't tell him that you're coming. Don't tell anybody that you're coming. So she gets in early in the morning. We go to the airport. And when we get there, Dennis and I, she's there. And there's a girl that's meeting her. And Uh, we say, what? What happened to not telling anybody that you were coming into town? Oh, she's my girlfriend. She's good. Well, she's in the industry. In the stripper industry. Yeah. My experience had been in dealing with some of these girls that they had a hard time keeping secrets. And I was afraid that if an extra person knows, then it's going to get carried around. And it has the possibility of getting back to Francisco. Yeah, of course. Who still, as far as we're concerned, he's frequenting these clubs. Mm -hmm. So we started getting a glimpse at Liza that she might be a little bit difficult to manage. We regroup and we say, all right, listen, don't talk to anybody. We had booked the room for her at a hotel. We made a late night phone call, recorded it and said, just leave him a voicemail message. Tell him, hey, I want to talk to you. It's been a long time. So she does that. And I said, if he calls back during the night, just let it go to voicemail. Don't answer it. So good night. We go home. About five o'clock in the morning, I get a phone call from Liza. And she says, oh my gosh, he's on his way here. That's my question. What? And she says, I I accidentally answered the phone and then I told him where I was. And so he's on his way over here right now. Meanwhile, you want him to think she's in the other state. Right. She has fucked this up so bad. Yeah. And it's like, okay, I get that maybe, you know, you accidentally answer the phone. But how do you accidentally tell him that you're here? And and how does he know where you're at? Right? Mm. 
So obviously, I'm starting to question her motivations a little bit, right? I'm thinking, is there more to the story? Like maybe the sex they had was more consensual than what she had stated or... Yeah, I don't know. It just sounds like she wanted to see him, frankly. Yeah. She's just not going with the program. She's yeah. not following any direction that any. she's been giving. Right. We as investigators, you get this anecdotal from people about, yeah, that person has not been completely truthful, and this is an example of things that they've done that I think I, I question their integrity or their honesty or reliability. And, of course, I'm looking at it going, well, I'm having a personal experience with this right now with right. her. So for me, I'm starting to question what her motivation might be. I know that Francisco is on the job. And when she tells me he's on his way there now, I'm like, well, crap. So I call Dennis and wake him up and I say, I don't know what's going on, but I'm heading over there right now. I'm going to try to get an eye on the hotel and see what's going on. But apparently he's on the way there now. Were you going to intercept or just observe? I wasn't really sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, no time I, to think. I'm going to go see what I can see and react to it. So it's like, this is a fluid situation. Wow. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. As I get there and I'm driving my personal vehicle, I don't think he recognizes or would recognize. I see his car leaving. She calls me as I get in the parking lot. She says, he just left, but he fondled me while he was here. You know, so she's describing attempted sexual assault. Okay. Can you call it that if she invited him? I mean, that's a real question. Like, I, I don't know. That's a good technical question. Sure. And for me, it's like, well, okay, what's going on here? You know, I mean, this is all evolving in front of me, and I'm having the same questions you guys are. I'm thinking, is she credible, right? Mm -hmm. But she is saying something happened. So Dennis and I decide, let's just call him in and we'll interview him. Call Francisco in. Yeah. Because I'm assuming she told him, oh, yeah, they brought me here. I mean, did she give all the information up to him? Does he know why no, she's in the hotel? she didn't disclose that. She just said, I'm in town. She said that she was there for a photo shoot, something like that. And she comes up with that during the course of the conversation. Dennis and I decide, let's just see what's happening. I mean, I think whatever Liza has told us during the course of this investigation so far, we're beginning to have a little bit of a question about what exactly is happening, what's reliable and what's not. So we decide, let's bring Francisco in, let's talk to him. So you bring him to the department. I guess he's still working, but you say, hey, we need to question you and you bring him in. Yeah, so we brought him in 
and he was on the job. He had no idea it was coming. We just called him to the station, and he came in in uniform and sat down, and we had a conversation about it. So you get some information from him in this interview, but is it incriminating enough to do anything, or do you have to just send him off and go slap on the wrist and keep your investigations going? No, he acknowledges misconduct, and he acknowledges public indecency. I mean, he says that he's in a public park and he's exposing his penis and he's engaging in a sex act with two women. So he acknowledges to us these criminal violations and we're interpreting them as misconduct and crimes. He, again, as I said, he's thinking, oh, this is misbehavior and misconduct. I'm probably gonna get a day off or two, but it's not criminal, he thinks, but it is. And so we put him on administrative leave. We take his badge and gun, we go down that path. Just days after we put him on administrative leave, I called him and said, hey, um, you were very forthcoming. Is there anything else we should know about? And he said, yeah, there are some other sexual interactions that happened with women that I met on the job. And so he agreed to meet us. So we met just coincidentally. I designated the same coffee shop that this whole thing started. I said, let's meet there. I thought you were going to ask him to the park. I did too. I'm not going to lie. I did too. <laughs> yeah, I said, why don't you meet me at that same coffee shop? And so he met us there and we recorded the conversation and he went with us and we went as he directed. First, he took us to Amanda's house. He took you there? Yeah, he directed us to her house. So Dennis was sitting in the back seat with him. I was driving and he was talking and he was just telling us where to go. This is kind of like what you would do with a burglary suspect who's hit dozens of houses is drive me around town and tell me where to go for the houses you've hit. Sure, you bet. So we took you on the victim tour. Yeah, exactly. So he told me about Amanda. He told me about Jennifer. He took us to another house where he met a girl named Sherry. He had interaction with her. He told us about Shannon. Good grief. Helen. Oh. <gasps> And so he just directs us around. He's spilling his guts. He's cleansing his soul. He's acknowledging in his mind, I guess, he's telling us about these other women so that he can get this out in front of him and then get it behind him and get back to work. Is he remorseful or is he matter of fact? No, nah, he's just matter of fact. He tells us in retrospect, yeah, I regret doing this and I know I'm probably going to get in trouble for it, but I'm going to get some time off. But in his mind, these are all consensual interactions because as I said, he's different. He doesn't behave the way Robert did. And maybe in some ways, Francisco just perfected what he had learned from Robert. Right. right? So I think he eliminates the forcible compulsion because in his mind, if they are reciprocating interest in me, that's a green light. So he's saying Amanda, Jennifer, Sherry, Shannon, Helen, all of these women wanted to participate sexually with him and that there was no abuse of power whatsoever. Right. But when we talk to these women, they describe a different scenario. Can you tell us about some of the scenarios with the other women? Jennifer says that she has a dispute in her neighborhood with a woman over a bicycle. Something had gotten stolen. And so she says... He came to my house. He helped me resolve that situation. He was flirting with me. I was flirting with him. I noticed he didn't have a wedding ring. And that was one of the things that he said he did at night. He took his wedding ring off and left it in his locker. And so he demonstrated that he was single and she was interested. And she said he came back to my house, in this case, when he was off duty. And uh, she said, we visited. And then he came back again on duty. And she said he knocked at the door. And I opened the door and 
she said he started kissing me and I was, you know, kissing back. It was awkward. She said he was in uniform. She described this full frontal assault. She said, I was interested in him like, I want to get to know you. I want to go out with you. I want to go on a date. She said, he backed me into my kitchen and he started pushing my head down toward his crotch. And that wasn't what I had in mind. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I could say no. And this is something that was repeated time and time again during this investigation. Right. Because he's in uniform and there's that sense of power. That's an element of force is just presence in uniform. I mean, police departments acknowledge that in their policy. And so she says, I did it. I performed oral sex. I didn't want to, but I didn't feel like I could say no. And um, like one of the instances that we talked about with Robert, she said, this was so upsetting to me, I vomited. Ah, while he was there or after he left? While he was there. Oh. She says his reaction was, you know, she got up and left and went to the bathroom and she came back and he still wanted more. Oh, no. And she said, I, you know, I, I did it. And so this is one of many stories. The one I talked about with Bobby, the one where Jimmy, the officer, was there mm-hmm. and that situation occurred. I wanted to pursue forensic evidence to try to validate what Bobby said had happened. So I went back there. My thought was I'll find some DNA because she said that he had ejaculated on the floor and she said, I don't clean house. There might still be trace evidence. So I went back there and it was a couple years later. Hang on. She didn't clean house for a couple of years? Well, the trailer was gone. Oh. The trailer had been destroyed. It was moved and it was scrapped. So that was one of those cases that we never were able to prove. But like with, I mentioned Brenda, Amanda and Jennifer, Sherry, Shannon, I mean, those cases we were able to corroborate with evidence. Tell us about Shannon because Robert preyed on her vulnerability in a particularly cold-blooded way. Shannon presented at the district attorney's office and they directed her to me. Shannon had been out one night and she was walking around late at night and she was putting a bulletin. She was trying to find a runaway daughter. A runaway daughter? Yeah. So her daughter had disappeared and she was trying to find her and she was putting up missing posters. Had she gone to the police saying my daughter's missing as well? She had and her daughter was a runaway and she would frequently come and go. At this time she was missing again and so mom Shannon was out putting these bulletins out. And Francisco saw her. She had a dog with her. She was walking a big dog. It's late at night. So Francisco came up and engaged her in conversation, started talking about what she was doing. And she gave him a flyer and he showed some interest in trying to find her daughter. And again, he was targeting her, obviously, we found later. And she said that because of his interest in trying to help her find her runaway daughter, she was flattered by the fact that he was also interested in her and she felt safe and she felt motivated to keep in touch with him. And so she did. He parted with her with the flyer and gave her his phone number and said, call me, you know, that kind of thing. And then I think he put her on his regular routine of patrols and he found her out walking again one night with her dog. He came up and reinitiated contact with her and started talking and he kissed her. And she said, I didn't feel anything from the kiss. There wasn't any spark there. So she said, I told him as much. And she was a spiritual person, as I would later find out. She was sort of a hippie chick. She lived in a real humble surrounding. She never had a car. She walked to get around, but she had a daughter. And I think she had two children. 
Was she a drug addict at all? Was she one of those vulnerable, marginalized women? No, she wasn't. She led kind of a simple life, I think. Mm. And um, because he would encounter her at night when she was alone, I think he perceived her to be vulnerable. Of course, he used that missing person, that runaway aspect as leverage. So she said, you know, I, I really just wasn't interested. But she said he persisted. She described a couple situations where she... She was social. She had another friend, a male friend, and they had been out to a movie and they were sitting in front of her house in this guy's truck. And she says, Francisco drove by in a patrol car and whipped around behind us and turned the police lights on and shined the bright lights into our car. Yeah, and she said, I was interested in this guy and I liked him. And then all of a sudden, here's this policeman and he comes up and he says, hey, Shannon, how you doing? And he says, hey, can I see your driver's license and registration to the dude? Oh, my God. Based on what? Yeah, he's parked the wrong direction in front of the house. And so it's just, you know, she says she describes this sort of intimidation. And then she has to explain how she knows this officer to this man. And again, it's subtle leverage, I think, Mm -hmm. is what he's creating. Intimidation. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, Francisco comes back to her house when he's off duty. She invites him in. She says, I'm not threatened by him but I'm not interested in him. And she describes this forcible compulsion to perform oral sex. Ugh, that kills me. But she is the one who I talked about when we first started talking about this. She ended up being involved in the Alford negotiations and the Alford plea. Oh. And in the civil part of this that followed, just like with Robert, she got a settlement from the city. She purchased a vehicle. She'd never had a car before. So she buys this little pickup truck with a canopy and she said she liked to pick mushrooms and so she would take her dogs and she'd go out and harvest mushrooms that was her thing and she got a personalized license plate for her truck to commemorate how she got it this was all unbeknownst to me months later she shows up at the station and she calls me and said hey i left something for you at the front counter at the station a little souvenir So when I got to the station, there's this envelope for me and I open it up and it's this personalized license plate and it says, bad cop. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty cool. Yeah. So she called me and she said, I kept one and I thought I'd give you one. Giving you the other. You still have it? Yeah, I do. It's really cool. I love that. What a great acknowledgement. Yeah. Really looking back on it, the Alford aspect of this case was something that the prosecution certainly arrived at. It wasn't some undertaking that wasn't a thoughtful process. I think the prosecutor felt like the Liza issue was complicated. You know, Liza coming here from the other state and then going sideways on us. Her credibility got knocked down a little bit. But there were so many other women. Why would you let Francisco take an offer plea? Why wouldn't you just go to trial? Well, there's some benefits to guilty pleas and uh, plea petitions like this that you have limited appellate rights that you can't come back multiple times down the road and keep appealing this and we have to rehash the whole trial again. So there's benefits to that also that all these victims don't have to get up on the stand and recount these horrible acts that occurred to them. They've got families, they've got significant others, they've got children. They know that this is a big publicity case. They don't want to air all their dirty laundry. So there's benefits to this and that you limit the exposure to the victims. You limit the exposure to post-conviction relief where somebody could appeal and say, hey, I want a new trial or I didn't do this, and they get a new trial. It's kind of more signed, sealed, and delivered. This is what it's going to be, and we're done with it. Can anyone make an Alfred plea? 
Because also what it seems like it limits is the possibility for him to get an insane and worthy sentencing for everything he was actually up to. Right. Offer pleas typically are a fairly sweet deal for the defendant, but they're also a fairly sweet deal for the prosecution. It's a negotiation. So I've had Alfred pleas where someone took an Alfred plea, said, yeah, you could prove my guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, but I didn't do it, and they took 20 years. Oh. They still had to go to prison for 20 years? 20 years. Oh. On an Alfred plea. So it's kind of a balance of where do we want to go with this as the prosecution versus what's the defendant willing to accept? It's a chess move. I can't say I fully understand, and I certainly don't feel satisfied for these women that Francisco got an Alfred plea, although I do understand not wanting to re-victimize them. I can tell you from a law enforcement perspective that Alfred pleas are not satisfying to law enforcement because you're not acknowledging what you did. There's no accountability there other than this length of time that you're going to be in a timeout. And refresh my memory, what did he get? What he got was the equivalent of about a five-year sentence. But as part of the negotiation, he was given the ability to have access to programs. And one of those programs was an inmate boot camp. The concept behind that is you go through this boot camp that includes what you would obviously associate with a boot camp. There's a physical fitness sort of regimen routine, but there's also counseling and that kind of thing. And if you stay with it and you graduate, you get a significant sentence reduction. The conflict for me was this guy had been to Marine Corps. And so he'd been through Marine Corps boot camp. So, you know, you could stand on one hand and do inmate boot camp. Right. So to me, that was a pretty sweet deal for him. And he got out earlier than his original time. He spent about two years in prison and then he got out. And, you know, Dave hit on a point that I think is worthy of emphasizing is that one of the considerations that the district attorney consulted in making this Alfred decision was that none of these women wanted to testify. They were all pretty reluctant. But that was a factor that was also present in Robert's case. Women in that case didn't want to testify. And then ultimately, when we went through this Alfred process, each of the women ended up having to testify anyway. And Really? Yeah. Why? That was just the way it ended up going. To me, I remember sitting there thinking, gosh, we might as well have gone to trial because these women are having to testify and be cross-examined. So the whole thing, just not in front of a jury, only in front of a judge, I'm assuming? Judge, yeah, just a judge. A bench trial. Yeah, right. Uh, So anyway, yeah, it was was not satisfying. And I think that we scratched the surface because we stopped once the district attorney said this is the way we're going. So you really have no idea the full roster of women he may have abused. Yeah, I mean, I think if the Bobby disclosure at the trailer was any indication of the direction he had gone, I felt like he was as bad as Robert, certainly. It's just so vile. It's unbelievable. Small Town Dicks is produced by Zibby Allen and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Soren Bation, Yardley Smith, and Zibby Allen. Music for the show was composed by John Forrest. Our associate producer is Erin Gaynor, and our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, head on over to smalltowndicks.com and become our pal on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at smalltowndicks. We love hearing from our small town fam, so hit us up. Yeah, and also we have a YouTube channel where you can see trailers for past and forthcoming episodes 
And we're part of Stitcher Premium now. That's right. If you choose to subscribe, you'll be supporting our podcast. That way, we can keep going to small towns across the country and bringing you the finest in rare true crime cases, told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. Thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you.